welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Thomas Simonsen Barnbrand. And my name is Sverre Ågård. And today we are discussing Possession, the 1981 movie directed by Andrzej Sulawski, starring Isabel Agini as Anna slash Helen, Sam Neill as Mark, and Heinz Bennett as Heinrich. The cinematography is by Bruno Newton. Special effects by Carlo Rombaldi and music by Andrzej Korzynski. So before we start talking about this movie, it's probably a good idea to say that we go pretty thoroughly through the plot. So if you care about spoilers, come back later and... Uh, Just watch the movie, yeah. you swine. So this film is about Sam Neill's character Mark, who seems to have returned from some spy mission and finds his wife in a state of hysteric and intense mania and he himself falls into this something's happened without him understanding what while he's been away and it starts almost like kind of an intense drama film about their relationship falling apart yeah it really seems like this movie is about a marriage falling apart and uh, there's this lover of hers who she's been with for about a year called Heinrich, who initially seems like the third part of this relationship of why things have gone wrong. But something's off. There seems to be something even more because she's extremely erratic and Sam Neill's character Mark as well is starting to be kind of really falling apart and hires a private domesticator to kind of follow her, try and find out where she's going because he visits Heinrich and she's not there and when she's not home. She keeps going to the apartment and disappearing for whiles and he doesn't know where she is. Yeah, but they have a kid together so she sort of returns and cooks meals for him and stuff. A little bit, but yeah. also somewhat neglectfully disappears yeah, sure. in bits. And he sort of discovers this third apartment where she's staying with kind of a creature or manifestation or something that's real a horrid beast and also there's a doppelganger of anna who's bob's teacher bob is the kid little bob little bob and she looks exactly like exactly she has green eyes and a different hairstyle obviously the same person <laughs> <laughs> except she's very sort of calm and reassuring and very um motherly in a way yeah she's not like completely erratic and Anna starts acting even more weird when people show up at this apartment and she actually starts killing people. She even attacks Heinrich when he comes by. Stabs him after he's seen all the horrid, uh, bloody creatures. Yes, this monstrosity that's uh, yeah. some kind of tentacle flesh thing. And eventually Sam Neill comes by and, and sees some of this as well. There's also like piles of bodies and stuff in the freezer and stuff that he sees. Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer style. And he subsequently meets up with Heinrich who's wounded and he kills him <laughs> yeah and blows up her apartment and kind of returns to some of his spy activity from the beginning of the movie and runs away from the police and then anna shows up again and they are shot by the police she also has with her a doppelganger of him now yeah which is uh, possibly this flesh monster that's been transformed into a version yeah, this, of him this tulpa feels kind of david lynch in but he doesn't get hit by the bullets, the doppelganger. But they die, more or less. And Well, she shoots herself in the back yeah. in the most awkward way. Yeah. And also the doppelganger makes a neighbor lady shoot them yeah. <laughs> before he climbs up the window. He's very persuasive. And then he turns up at this apartment where Helen, like the doppelganger version of Anna, is taking care of Bob, the kid. And the kid freaks out, screaming, don't open the door, and hides in like, the bathtub. And there's basically like an air raid. And the film ends at a close-up of her face. It's pretty bizarre stuff. Yeah, it's a film that goes through a couple of turns, I would say. 
the end stretch is pretty erratic and interesting. Very kind of disjointed. and I mean, it's surreal, but it's also sort of psychotic. Because the first half of the movie is quite well put together and it's actually like a really good portrait of a marriage falling apart. Although and it, to the nth degree, that's to Yeah, be said. for sure. But it has like these erratic moments that just keep growing in intensity and, and length. Yeah, but the acting is really good. I mean, it's quite expressionistic at times. It's quite over the top, but it kind of works mm. for this. I don't know. This director does have a sort of frantic style. I mean, some might say it would be too over the top, but it kind of appeals to me. I think it works very well, especially Ajani, I think, does an amazing job as this extremely... She goes from being kind of normal <laughs> to these extremes that are so overpowering to watch the very overwhelming... Uh... Yeah, her energy kind of reminds me of Shelley Duvall from The Shining. This very, like, nervous intensity. Of course, it's way more focused in the case of Anna in this movie. And she's also... Um, more of a person of power and sort of uh, vulnerability, in a sense. She's a murderer and a sort of creator of flesh beasts. But I mean, like, she has a forcefulness and an intensity to her. She acts. Yeah, for sure. Like, the shining character kind of is acted upon more. Yeah, definitely. Also, I think uh, Isabella Johnny, she feels a bit more like she got a bit more into the part. As far as I'm aware, it wasn't very good for her mental health, this movie. Well, uh, so there's, there's some interesting backstory <laughs> to this film. First of all, Zelowski himself has been uh, known to talk about it in terms of his own personal life, where he had a pretty tumultuous breakup with his wife, Margrozata Bronek, at the same time as being more or less expelled from Poland himself. Why was that? Well, he's always kind of had a, a fraught relationship with making films in Poland. And the next film we can talk about on the Silver Globe, which he shot before Possession mostly. He shot like two-thirds pretty large amount of that film before regulators came in and said this is an anti-Soviet movie. So they cut all the funds, but they also destroyed all the costumes and the sets and all that stuff. So that film was basically buried and he was basically exiled. And he went to New York. Some friends invited him. For two months he was writing, drinking cheap bourbon and just writing this. He had this idea of a woman in Warsaw who's kind of uh, staying in this gloomy, miserable version of Warsaw, saving her soul by culminating something unimaginable and beyond all systems in like a poor flat. That was kind of like the base set they had and then he went to America and he wrote it and he got a co-writer to help him finish it off and uh, got financed most of it in America and some in Europe and it's really like this big co-production like money all over the place and actors also. You know, it's shot before the fall of the wall and, and it has a lot of those themes of a crumbling Eastern Europe. Apparently, most of the locations, like the houses there, they're pretty close to where their wall used to be. Yeah. I mean, there are some direct shots of the wall and border guards and stuff like that. It does have a bit of an oppressive tone of the city, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, it was kind of like a really fraught part of his life, kind of a manic, and already he was kind of known for making these intense and manic films. He talked about being suicidal and trying to write his way past that, and uh, this project probably wouldn't get you past that, but probably <laughs> <laughs> right into it. Yeah, well, he lived for many years after, so I guess... Yeah. Uh, it Maybe it was therapeutic. Yeah. But yeah, as you say, uh, a very intense production even like sam neill is, is, is described it as uh, the most extreme film he ever made in every possible respect and he was asked by the director to do things he wouldn't and couldn't do now 
and he just barely escaped with his sanity intact. Yeah, and he's done some insane movies. So, uh, I mean, it's uh, impressive that this is like by far the most extreme movie he's done. Right. And the emotional intensity of this movie is quite uh, extraordinary, actually. Yeah. And as you say, like, it, it took a toll on Ajani. And because she'd had some pretty good stuff in earlier in her career, but at this point, it kind of stagnated a bit. She had a reputation of being difficult to work with. Yeah. Often, as we in later times have found out, that means she just wouldn't put out to some director or financier, which was a common trait. You'd, <laughs> you'd label these actresses as uh, difficult to work with. Yeah. Or recalcitrant or yeah, whatever. Yeah, you never really know how these things are. But I think she was in a, a kind of a, a difficult spot herself. She was trying to make it in America, I think. And it didn't quite work out. Yeah, I mean, she'd recently done uh, Nosferatu with Herzog, which is a great the role. The Vampire. And she'd had some pretty good roles here and there, but her career hadn't taken off properly. But Zulowski kind of saw her and he was very interested in hiring her. She initially refused, partially, I think, because there was a role of a mother, some superficial thing like that. But the funny thing, here's, here's a funny coincidence, because he also was set on a, a cinematographer, a guy called Bruno Newton, who's also like done all sorts of stuff and really talented cinematographer. And he was talking to his cinematographer about this sort of stuff and then it's difficult to find actors. And it turns out that Bruno Newton was living with Isabella Johnny and they also had a kid together. So he kind of he, he, he talked to her and she got back to him and she agreed to take the role. It's about who you know. Yeah, really. That's a bit of a coincidence. And um, Was the kid named Bob? <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope not. But yeah, Zelowski himself says that she was known for being kind of a difficult actor. He was known for being a more difficult director and he wouldn't tolerate much, I think. He had his background from, from Eastern Europe, which he describes himself as from the culture of a poor filmmaker. Apparently, you know, making films, that was extremely regulated. I mean, you got one take, and that means that they meter up the length of film you could use. So you have to be resourceful, and you have to think ahead and kind of edit before you shoot. And rehearse a lot before shooting. Yeah. More like a theater production than an art. I think maybe his early films, uh, you can tell that it comes from maybe more experimental theater or something. But yeah, he'd do a lot of set rehearsals and then few takes. And I feel like a lot of those Eastern Bloc directors also like seem kind of imposing and strict yeah. and like quite demanding in terms of what they uh, expect from their actors and stuff. Yeah, he described her as being uh, pretty good to work with, though. I saw this interview of him on YouTube, probably from a, like a DVD extra, and he only mentioned like one situation I mean, it's, yeah, it's a bit alarming in a way, but uh, he didn't seem to think too much of it. But the situation was something like, because she didn't like to watch her dailies, which means she wouldn't watch like the, the recordings they did the day before with film. You, you'd have them delivered the next day and watch them often, several of the actors and stuff. But she didn't want to watch those. Pretty hung up in like her appearance and her physicality and, and that sort of stuff. And fitting her green lenses, she kind of flipped out. And it turns out apparently that one of the makeup guys had said she looked ugly or horrible with those lenses, which is extremely unprofessional. And that guy should have been fired immediately. Fuck that dude. <laughs> but it kind of uh, <laughs> fucked things up for her and she was really frustrated and red eye and, and puffy and um Zalewski was just he was just really pissed off and he just took the actress because she wouldn't go and set or anything and then he shoved her against the door he said she had 10 minutes to get ready for the shoot otherwise he'd smash her head and uh, kill her if she came down without those lenses which is like super intense way to behave but apparently she kind of cleaned up and came down and there wasn't any more problem but it says something about you probably you know he comes from the school of uh, Phil Spector of directing creatives. Threaten to kill them and you'll get the good take. Yeah, it seemed quite intense. 
Definitely a demanding guy and a demanding production, but not very long. Another sort of story from the set is this um, special effects guy called Carlo Rambaldi. He's known because he's, he's done like creature design and effects for stuff like uh, E.T. and Alien. And uh, he worked with Argento. He came from like the Italian school, also very sort of hands-on, working quick. But there'd obviously been some bad communication with the producers because he turned up like the day before he was going to make stuff. He brought some stuff, but basically he had one night to kind of create this creature and he had like three helpers or something, but he, I mean, he did a great job. It looks amazing to me. And, yeah, it's a horrible uh, sort of Cronenberg uh, <laughs> creature. Yeah, and you don't see so many details and that really helps it. Yeah, but that's part of the, the entire thing. Like yeah. you, you got to light it the way it's supposed to, but probably maybe to hide some some roughness in terms of not having enough time to actually work on it. I've seen pictures of the sculpture from behind the scenes and stuff, and it, it looks pretty good, this puppet thing, but mostly a stylistic choice. You know, they have different solutions for different scenes. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But in some scenes, it's quite well lit and you yeah. see it quite well. And yeah. it's really disturbing and cool. Like the design is really interesting, like sort of squid-like, worm-like. Yeah. yeah, it's disgusting. It looks to me like there's often like a human torso and then there has these tentacles. Yeah. And uh, I think there's often like a person underneath controlling the torso and then there's these strings from above controlling uh, the tentacles. It looks good as far as disgusting yeah. creatures go. It looks really good. I mean, he he's worked on some of the most impressive special effects movies. Yeah. Practical special effect movies of all time. So that's not surprising. But it's interesting that it is in this movie because you see it so late in the movie mm -hmm. uh, and you don't really expect it on a first viewing and it's kind of disconcerting yeah because it, it starts out more like a super intense drama is this really quite slow boil like even though there are some super intense scenes in the beginning it's like scenes from a marriage you know yeah. it's dramatic but it doesn't feel like supernatural or anything right it definitely has a bit of bergman in it i think For sure because it's this really like intense relationship between a man and a woman and it's sort of falling apart and like that stuff it holds up on its own throughout the first half of the movie and so it's not that it's like this insane left turn but it keeps getting weirder it does have a couple of uh, what the fuck moments uh. it does like I think like the scene where they're like hurting themselves with that meat uh, grinder oh. or the mechanical meat cutter yeah it's fucking some images are pretty hard to watch I mean it's an intense movie and it's continuing intense both like emotionally mm. and graphically mm. in terms of violence domestic violence self-mutilation suicide horrible disfigured monsters murder like there's so much intense stuff going on right and as you said that the narrative itself the plot is almost kind of schizophrenic it's kind of difficult to place i think initially when when the film was distributed in america he was very frustrated because he said that the film is easily mistaken by idiots for a horror movie <laughs> very bombastic thing to say and it's kind of a snobbish <laughs> thing to say too like horror movies aren't valid or whatever. right and he called like the american cut of the film which is like 80 minutes much shorter well they cut out most of the marriage stuff yeah. so it's more of a creature feature almost uh he called it a horrible and vulgar con job <laughs> <laughs> brutal and harmful to the movie <laughs> He's, yeah. He has a way with words. <laughs> yeah, but apparently it, it did affect people who watched it because a lot of people watched the horrible, disfigured uh, version mm. of the movie and thought that was, you know, the director's intent. Mm. Or, and I can understand how you would be pretty pissed off at that. Yeah, definitely. But I, I really like how it's so unpredictable, at least the first time you see it. Like, it, at first it seems like there's some mark there, Sam Neill character. He has, he has this meeting 
in this huge room with four suits who are asking him about some kind of mission he's done, about some vials and pink socks and some person he's been following and he's he's saying that he wants to stop and that the successor should take over. They don't want that. And then afterwards he opens his suitcase and it's full of cash and it's like, what's what's going on? Like, I didn't quite get that. No. But actually, uh, it was a, kind of an issue when I watched the movie because I watched it without subtitles. And the audio is pretty sketchy at times uh, because of a lot of it is from the take in the room. So you hear a lot of room noise and stuff. And so I thought like I missed maybe some portions of the plot. I didn't really when I went back and sort of went through the plot. Mm. I caught basically everything. But I had this feeling that I was missing <laughs> stuff. And uh, I think that has more to do with the fragmented nature of the way that it's edited and stuff. I mean, I was feeling probably what I was supposed to be feeling, but mm. I felt like it was my own fault. <laughs> <laughs> but especially the parts about the spying and stuff, I really didn't understand Yeah, at all. I mean, it's pretty obscure and it's not really that important, except that he's been away and he's been doing stuff. Except at the very end, it almost turns into like an action movie with car explosions. Yeah, and, that's uh, bizarre too. It's like this runaway scene where they're like trying to escape the police. Like yeah. It's, it comes very much out of the blue. But I kind of like this this sort of weird, unpredictable-ness of the film that it kind of won't be pigeonholed so easily. No, like quite the opposite. It, it sort of always uh, subverts your uh, expectation of, of what's going on. Like you don't even have a clear expectation. You're just sort of taken along for the ride, as it were. Mm. And I can understand his frustration with calling it a horror movie because while it uses a lot of those tropes, it, that's just one part of it. It's kind of a, a mix of several things, I think. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like a horror movie at all. No. I, I mean, it's, uh, it's not very scary. It's just very uncomfortable. Like there's no jump scares or anything. But it, I, even the creature part like it's not really scary it's just disconcerting and uncomfortable it's, and it's intense. very unsettling i would yeah. say and a lot of that unsettling also comes from isabella johnny herself as she's very overpowering in her performance and watching her act out some of these scenes is really unsettling and overwhelming she feels so volatile yeah and you know that's also part of like what mark sam neil's character but like what he's reacting to or, or what sort of making him lose grip on reality is Anna's volatility yeah. and he can't quite parse her actions and he feels like he's losing her, but he doesn't understand what's going on with her at all. And initially he thinks it's because she's cheating, but yeah. it turns out like it's so much more bizarre and, and cryptic and weird. And, and that's so interesting because he's begging her for some kind of explanation and he says it's almost better if you just say that you're unfaithful that you're with this guy and that you love him and that I'm not good enough or whatever that would be helpful but she can't put a word to it and it leaves him in this state of frenzy this escalating frenzy and he, he kind of calms down a bit but the film's I think um in the beginning, he's he's kind of apologetically sad about, you know, the state of affairs. He doesn't know what's going on. It's also a bit pathetic. Like yeah. He begs her to, like, take him back and is, like, willing to do whatever. And, yeah. And then he sort of switches and becomes angry and he, like, flips between the emotions. And he's just kind of, I mean, he's a kind of a mess, too. Definitely. Sure. And, and, and becomes quite violent at times. Yeah, it's quite uh, horrible. Like, the domestic violence scenes yeah. are quite... Brutal. Yes, they are. But interestingly made, I think. Very well made. I, I will also say the cinematography is very good in this yeah, movie. It's very, it's great. It's very like clean and precise, but at times very like movement oriented as well, depending on what's sort of going on. Yeah. 
I mean, Zelowski is kind of at least earlier known for having like lots of handheld long tracking shots and stuff. And he does that a fair bit and probably uses a fair bit of Steadicam here and there, it looks like. But yeah, the cinematography is beautiful. And I was kind of looking at it because, you know, the floors are often messy because, I mean, the costumes and the floors are often like stained and dirt all over. But the walls are often very clean and the light is often cold and clean and sterile in a way. There's a lot of clinical. There's a lot of blue hue. Yeah. And, and stuff like yeah, and in general it comes off as disconnected and sterile and quite inhuman and also mixed with the kind of uh, otherness of the city and there's not a lot of shots of a lot of people often the streets are quite empty yeah and it ends up feeling quite alienating in a way that really suits the tone of the movie yeah it's quite lonely and, and very painfully i think as well the light is a little bit soft it's beautiful. The shots are very beautifully compositioned, lots of angles, lots of vertical lines. A lot of the shots in the interiors are very, like, thoughtfully mm. framed and mm. uh, lit and shot. It's nice. And at the same time, you have this, like, bubbling intensity of the acting and the characters and the juxtaposition of those elements. It's very uncomfortable. Mm. And that intensity just keeps brewing throughout the movie with these bursts of violence and insanity. But it works so well. You mm. sort of it's kind of enjoyable just to sit back and take it all in. Yeah, yeah. I like how it unravels as first a sad and uncomfortable story about someone who's cheating and then starts to escalate and you can sort of tell that there must be something else going on. Especially after you've met Heinrich. And <laughs> he's, he's so funny. He's, he's like so great. Has there ever been a character who's had his shirt so far unbuttoned? Like I mean, he's just the most German guy ever. He's, yeah. he's like a bit tan. Yeah. And like his shirt is never buttoned. It's like always like full chest. And the first scene where Sam Neill's character meets him and sort of, uh, well, he goes to see where Anna is. And he's like sort of weirdly like touchy-feely yeah, yeah. and like he's... Very sensual. Yeah. And he's like apparently like this... Uh, karate trained yeah like he has some like sort of eastern sen thing yeah. going on it's just very strange i love him he, he seems he seems like such a fish out of water character in this movie but he's sort of necessary i think without him it would be a bit too drab yeah he's a, a nice colorful element in an otherwise quite sterile and yeah, he's and very movie. colorful and when he first meets him mark is at his most erratic perhaps and he attacks him and he just gets like karate chopped and repeatedly like, yeah. again and again. but but he's very calm about it uh, heinrich he's not aggressive or evil in that sense no I he's mean, like a tai chi master or, or like he's taking it in stride and he's been sending uh Ajane, like postcards from the taj mahal where he says like cheesy romantic things like i've seen god's face half of it was here and the other half is yours which is like i mean that's not even cheesy that's sort of bizarre in its own right i think right who the fuck talks like that <laughs> yeah he has these kind of he's like philosophical yeah uh, but like in this kind of seductor's way i mean he's, it feels like he's always coming on to the person yeah, he's talking to no matter who he's talking to it's it's interesting and i've read a fair bit of criticism about this movie that's about that it's a bit sterile and unfunny and takes itself too seriously but i don't really agree with that no like there's plenty of funny scenes yeah in yeah, yeah it is very funny at times uh, especially uh, because of heinrich yeah. he's just uh, he's delightful he's my favorite character in this movie yeah <laughs> he's so weird and one of the things that he does really well i don't know if 
I can think of so many other films that does it as well is like just conveying the sense of horror in a character. Sometimes that's a Johnny kind of flipping out. Sometimes it's like when people turn up at her apartment and they see the monster, they kind of lose their shit. Yeah. They go temporarily blind. They're kind of staggering and they have no words and they just fumble around. That's such an effective way to convey like utter horror. Like usually you'd have like someone screaming and shouting and waving or something, but here it feels more grounded in a way. Like they're really put off. Not just grounded, but to me, it feels almost like metaphysical at times. It's so horrible. You literally go blind for a half a minute. Like, yeah. It feels biblical. It mm. feels like some cosmic horror shit. And it kind of is mm. like this apartment with this horrible secret that's like kind of indefinable. You don't know what she's doing. In my opinion, she's, she's sort of crafting some entity and, <laughs> and possibly like channeling this negativity in her life into something else through some horrible ritual. Mm. But it's all left up in the air. Nothing is really precisely laid out. Right. I mean, it's not explained what this thing is, what it does and where it comes from. It's kind of alluded to a little bit. Heinrich at some point leaves this roll of film tape at Sam Neill's apartment, which she looks at and it's, it's Heinrich filming her at an earlier stage where she's uh, teaching ballet yeah. and being very kind of harsh and brutal about it to these kids. Yeah, it reminds me of the Hanukkah movie, Piano Teacher. Yeah. It's kind of intense teacher moments. She takes this girl and she's kind of forcing her to hold this pose when she's in pain. She's telling her all the things that she should do, you know, tighten your stomach and that. But she keeps looking in the camera, which makes it very unsettling, actually. And it's kind of... Like the camera in the film, of the film. Yeah. But it still feels like she's talking to you. Again, it, it's sort of Lynchian. It reminds me of Inland Empire, the mm. way those scenes where it's like, mm. where the camera is clearly part of it. Mm. And it's sort of not breaking the fourth wall necessarily, but sort of breaking the boundaries between like observer and the observed. And you feel like very that. confronted by her. Right. It's and very hostile. Yeah. You get this sort of animal instinct from her and it's uh, unsettling as fuck. And there's like uh, quite a few of these weird scenes, like the scene where she talks about having a miscarriage of some sort in the subway. Also like horrible. Because in that film, she starts to talk about kind of her unraveling, I think. That's how I, I interpret it. She's, she's talking to Heinrich, I guess. She starts to talk about these two sisters, Sister Chance and Sister Faith. It's almost like a little parable or a fable or story that she's telling. And she says something like, My faith can't ignore chance, but chance can't explain faith. My faith couldn't wait for chance, and chance couldn't give me enough faith. Which sounds kind of abstract and, and kind of difficult to understand right in that context what she's going on about. Yeah, I didn't have a clue. Like, <laughs> she just sounded like a crazy person to me. Right. I found this kind of interesting take. It's a guy called David West who, who wrote an article called Possession, a Marriage on the Natural and the Supernatural. Because what, what happens is that after she's had this talk with Heinrich and this stuff, this is like a year before Mark has come back, right? So she's gone to the church and she's looking up at like a Jesus statue and she's already in a crisis and she's kind of trying to connect and find a faith or something or some connect with her God and that fails. And so she goes to the underground and has like the most intense freak out scene you can imagine and, and um, 
That's so horrible. I would categorize it as the second most intense, like... Subway scene? Subway scene. After Irreversible? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Irreversible is worse, but it's a close second. For sure. I was thinking the exact thing. It's quite close. Yeah. It's such this wild and insane dance. Like, I think Zlowski wanted her to act like she's having sex with the air or something. And But <laughs> he, I think he was very fond of that moment. And he said he didn't have... He was more like a witness than a director. That was very much her acting out that stuff. Yeah. And and that scene is kind of what I think about when I say that she's almost seemed a bit more into it than Sam Neill because she just gives herself to that scene 100% and it's really difficult to yeah, watch. Yeah, 120%. Yeah. Uh, and kind of ends with her falling to the ground and starting to bleed. And this is what David West kind of refers to as the miscarriage of faith and that Sister Chance and Sister Faith, they're like aspects of her, right? Like faith as maybe like her faith in the relationship with Mark and with the order of things in general and Chance being like the chaos, like the wild, I don't know, cosmic horror of things. That's my paraphrasing. And at this point, the faith, the good-natured side of her is miscarriaged and removed from her. What is left is this chaos being who's unstable and, and wild. And um, yeah, here's what he says. This miscarriage of faith is Anna purging of her existing beliefs. Anna has rejected God as a source of meaning and she turns to the other methods. Her new lack of faith apparently allowing her the moral freedom to carry out her gruesome work. It's interesting though, because that aspect of her, the, the faith aspect, if that's how you want to look at it, doesn't disappear exactly, but it kind of manifests in this other version of her, Helen, which is this green-eyed doppelganger who is like a proper, caring, stable kind of mother figure more. And she's left as this raving lunatic. Yeah. yeah. And again, this sort of play of split personalities or different aspects of people does have a vaguely Bergman-esque quality to it, even though it's completely bizarre and way more cosmic horror. Even those bizarre and intense scenes do have this quality of very introspective psychology, even though I can't quite parse out the meanings of faith and chance and stuff. I mean, that's one interpretation that you just read, mm. and I think that fits the narrative quite well, but I'm not sure that that is what it is. I mean, the stuff she miscarriages is like this mix of slime and blood, and there's some green stuff. And it looks disgusting. It's really filthy. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that scene on a visual level. Yeah, it's yeah. so fucking horrible. Mm. It's like a dance. Yeah. It's so beautifully shot and acted. Extremely macabre and just, yeah. yeah. Very intense. Super intense. And I think after that point, the movie just goes to pieces in an interesting way. Well, I wouldn't say it goes to pieces, but it definitely goes places. <laughs> <laughs> well, the characters go to pieces and the yeah. movie goes to places. Yeah. Like, all the characters deteriorate. That's interesting because they kind of pulsate. Like, they go to an absolute terrible place and they come sort of back. Like, Sam Neill's character, initially, he's kind of stable but sad and then flips a switch when she basically tells him that the other lover is better. And at that point, you're thinking it's probably the other Heinrich or whatever. You haven't met him yet. There's this scene very early on where they're sitting in a cafe, the meeting, because she's moved away, and they're sitting at the corner each side of it, same corner, so they're not looking at each other. They're talking, which is visually a really beautiful scene. Yeah, and I mean, they're they're at an angle from each other. And mm. I mean, that's symbolically very nice. It's with them. Yeah, it's like good mise-en-scene. Yeah. <laughs> and then she keeps insisting that the other guy's better and that if she knew about the other guy before, she would never have Bob, her son, with him. Poor Bob. 
And then he just flips. He just goes insane and starts flipping chairs and chasing after her. And like there's 10 guys jumping on and holding him down. Yeah, like five chefs and two like doormen. And yeah. <laughs> it's, uh... Yeah, he goes insane. And after that, there's these scenes of him in a hotel room. And you can tell that time has passed because his beard has grown long or short. Or Yeah, you know... he's been on like a binge from hell. Yeah, he, like he seems incoherent he's trying to talk on the phone but he literally can't form the words yeah. even he's like he's, he's so far gone shaking and sweating and this is when it really starts getting like ugly yeah there's food stains food on the floor nasty and he's like trying to talk on the phone but as you say being very incoherent and yeah. and weird and like swallowing his tongue apparently he's there for like three weeks or something yeah he asks the room service but yeah, the, the characters seem to oscillate between madness and normalcy throughout the movie. And it's almost as if where one waxes, the other wanes. Mm. So when Sam Neill's character is sort of normalizing, Anna is getting more and more crazy. Mm. And then they sort of pull and push each other. And again, like, there is this split in the characters that becomes more apparent as the movie goes on. Like, literally, mm. you know, with multiples of characters. You can view that as representational of their psyche because mm. they're falling apart mentally. Mm. But at the same time, like it could also literally be like manifestations of themselves or like crafted people. It's interesting also with Heinrich. It's, it seems like when Mark learns that Heinrich isn't their last piece of the puzzle, he seems to calm down a lot. And that kind of upends Heinrich and he, he shows up at his place and he's kind of has his own little dance where he's climbing on the walls and saying like poetic sad things. Yeah. And he's... Heinrich isn't free from the madness either. No. He's, he's drawn into it. And Mark is just so satisfied with this. Smugly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because it's, it's really self-satisfied also. Yeah. And really revels in Heinrich's unhappiness. Yeah, I mean, eventually, I'm like, I get more sympathy for Heinrich yeah. than the others. <laughs> he's kind of sane compared to the others. And uh, yeah. he's, he's mistreated, you know. Anna and Mark treat him like shit. Yeah, he doesn't like he doesn't attack anyone except they, unless they attack him. Which Mark I mean, does. he was in his full right to defend himself yeah. against Mark. Whilst when one of the more like intense scenes where Ajani's character she's she's showing up suddenly at the apartment with a the kid. There's a part that Zelensky more or less took from his own life there. Yeah, uh, the, the jam scene. Yeah, where he comes home and the place is in in ruins. <laughs> And the kid's sitting there alone with jam all over his face and his mother hasn't been there for ages. That's apparently a real-life story. Yeah, and it's funny, like, to add such a self-biographical detail to this horrid tale. But again, it's stuff like that that makes it feel strangely, like, psychologically mm. adept yeah. as opposed to this pure, like, body horror mm. movie or whatever. Yeah. As you said, the, these scenes of relationship violence, like the first like pretty serious one where she's been confronting him and she decides to leave and she slaps him. I mean, obviously not very hard. And he says, do that again. And she just looks at him so creepily and he looks back at her and then she goes to leave. But then he grabs her and he starts smacking her back. And that scene is so interestingly made, I think. Because the sound design and the cinematography is different in those specific slap images. Like it goes really quiet. The lighting is more expressionistic almost. Not overtly, but like it's subtle. There's something very direct about those slaps. It's in first person as well. So it feels very confrontational. It feels very unsettling, I think. It's very, it works very well and it's very creepy and intense. And there's actually more examples of that. 
the moment when Heinrich is sort of rolling around the hallways and being panegyric about some insanity. I, I don't even re recall what he's talking about. And Mark is being such a smug bastard. That scene too ends with them too in first person mm. and like kind of close, yeah. close up. It's really intense. And it's sort of the, the denouement of, of that sequence. And the scene doesn't really feel intense up until then, but then it suddenly does for mm. a little while and yeah. then you move on. But it's those small choices of having those close-ups and that editing, they feel very creative and it sort of throws you off balance a bit. Yeah. And that's really, really cool. Yeah, they're unsettling and they, they feel real in a way. They feel very well observed because there's something about if you slapped, it shakes you up, it changes the mood in a way. And this kind of uses that in such a filmatic way, I think. Yep, like you said, it feels quite natural. Like, it's not some clever editing trick, or rather it is, but the effect feels very natural mm. and true to life. Mm. Again, like, these moments feel very true to life and true to human emotion, even though the movie is just batshit insane. <laughs> yeah. And these scenes when she starts to really unravel, just even early on in, in the apartment when she's screaming and she has this one scene where, where she's kind of twisting her hands around in this way and it feels so erratic and it doesn't really feel like acting, you know? It feels like someone actually unraveling in front yeah, of the camera. She feels like she's in genuine distress. Yeah. Several moments in this movie. Yeah. There's one scene where, where Mark and Anna is in their apartment and it's a complete mess. Like it's destroyed. Mm. There's just junk all over the floor. I think it ends with Anna leaving and she's like trying to like hold this cup and saucer for like whatever reason and it feels so like something you would do if mm. you're out of source and you're just trying to focus on something but mm. it doesn't make sense in the situation mm. and she just drops it and moves on like yeah. it feels very again true to life those true like sort of absurdities of real distress yeah and the movie is littered with those small like moments of natural behavior in a distressing situation. And the thing I like about it is that it's it's not really vain about its characters and its set design. It allows things to be properly ugly. I mean, these are good-looking people, right? I mean, they're very good-looking. They're they're like leading actors for sure. Right, but, but it's rarely do you allow your actors to like be so sweaty and you know there's so many food stains on their clothes <laughs> and the disheveled. It's a scene where Anna is running away from Mark and she's bleeding from mouth. Yeah. She's, she's running from the house and she's just bleeding and she almost looks like a vampire. Yeah, there's like the blood is like mixed with saliva yeah. and there's like it's a slimy quality to it and it yeah. just looks macabre and horrific. But it's beautifully shot. The cinematography is great. And she almost uh, jumps into the path of a lorry that sort of tips over some cars that were on it. Yeah, there's something vampiric about it. I mean, she was in a vampire movie shortly before yeah, this. So. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because even though it's so erratic and intense, I think one of the reasons it's believable is because it, it feels rooted in the characters. Her difficulty seems to be, to me, that she can't talk about what's going on with her. Like she doesn't really have words. And at some point when he's come down a little bit later on and he's asking her what's going on or what are you afraid of? Are you afraid that I won't like you? And she says yes to that. But she, she has a hard time explaining things. She's terrible at explaining things. She can barely string a sentence together. Like she's horrible. Horrible at communicating. But I feel like that's that's not just like lack of communication skills. I feel like that's the core of the problem for her. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, if it feels like an emotional problem, yeah. it doesn't feel like a, like a skill problem. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely feels like she is not aware of how to communicate her feelings. She's almost not in touch with her feelings, yeah. so she doesn't understand them. She's just sort of in the woes of it. She's thrown around this inner landscape that's incredibly uh, intense and brutal, and she just can't figure out how to deal with it. And definitely not how to communicate it with her husband. And this idea of her having this 
body horror tentacle monster that she's cultivating or taking care of and having, having sex with and trying to formulate words. I mean, even if they had tried to write dialogue for it, it'd probably just feel cheap, I think. But like taking that language away from her and when he presses her, she kind of goes more and more nuts. That's one of the things that really seems to trigger her. And she starts to self-mutilate and she takes this electronic knife cutter thing. Yeah, this electronic meat cutter. Yeah, and she takes it to her throat and starts to cut it. And he sees it and he, and he stops her and he bandages her. And then he comes a lot down and he starts to say like, all right, things are going to be on as you wish. We won't talk about this. And there's a change in her. And you can see when she's not forced into this answering questions and relate. I think that's quite interesting. I think it's interesting also as it relates to self-harm. Because, yeah. I mean, a lot of self-harm is externalizing internal yeah. agony. And I think that really ties into the whole flesh monster she's creating. I mean, to me, it seems like a way of externalizing internal grief and suffering. I mean, in a way, it's very symbolic. But I love that it's not specifically symbolic or it doesn't dwell too much on it and it's open to a lot of interpretation. It's very ambiguous, right? It's, it is ambiguous and that serves it very well. But to me, it seems like very clearly connected to this sort of externalizing of inner pain. And that usually leads to suffering of the people around you. I mean, when you do self-harm, you're also harming the people who love you, right? Like in this movie, she literally like kills people by externalizing this, <laughs> this pain. But I mean, poor Heinrich. Although she's not the one who kills him. <laughs> she certainly tries, but... Well, she stops to stab him. That scene feels a bit stupid to me because yeah. she's like clearly shoving the knife into his armpit like a high school mm. uh, movie or whatever. I mean, she pokes a little bit in his chest, but you could tell that it's kind of bleeding from his armpit more than... I agree that's a limitation we maybe wouldn't have these days with technology and stuff. I mean, you have retractable blades. You've had that since the beginning of theater. Like, that's not... <laughs> a, that's not <laughs> retractable a new... blades? <laughs> no. They have to use a real blade, but be careful not to stab. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting because this creates a shift in him as well, where she's kind of gathering things, preparing to leave. And he goes into the kitchen and he takes this knife that she's, she started to cut herself with. And he starts to draw cuts in his arm himself. And she turns to him and she says, yeah, it isn't painful. You can just tell from that that this kind of self-harm isn't new to her. No. In fact, it seems quite familiar to her. Mm. And it's also that idea of like, you have all this pain you can't really express or like people can't even see it. So there's this relief to sort of bring it into the world, like actualizing it. Mm. And that probably feels like more of a relief than actual pain. I mean, it is pain, but also, you know, numbing your pain receptors, it makes you focus on other stuff than your sort of mental issues. Right. So, but it was also like an aspect of not having language. And this is where I think like the ambiguousness of it works really well, because I, I really think that Zulawski was kind of dealing with several things at once. One of the, the thing of his personal life with his relationships and stuff being really difficult, but also like the world he grew up in kind of falling apart and like the Eastern and Western kind of, that's sort of embedded in the, the film as well, like putting it in Berlin close to the border. I mean, that's sort of the landscape of it. That's also kind of like the interior landscapes of the characters. For sure, and that echoes with the themes. Right. And so the symbols, they're not so explicit. They're not one thing. There's kind of dealing with several things at once, which kind of make them very charged, but not so specific. And if they had been, then it might have felt cheap. Right, because there's more of a, it's like, it's not necessarily symbolism even, like these resonances or mm, echoes yeah. and themes that work very well in conjunction with each other. It's not just symbolism, or if it is symbolism, it works on multiple levels. Mm. But it feels to me like quite a subconscious work. I'm mm. not sure how, how well, he might have like really have it all figured out and everything mm. has a specific meaning or whatever. But to me, it feels 
like I was joking about it earlier, but it feels sort of therapeutic in a sense of like somebody working through emotional trauma or really difficult feelings by writing down like scenes that resonate with it. Yeah. Even though it's like, you can seem insane or whatever, and you might amp up the drama or intensity, it still feels like I've mentioned several times throughout this discussion, it feels very human and very apt, mm. and very like well-observed. I would agree with what you said earlier as well. It resonates a lot with particularly later Lynch films and maybe even The Return a lot in terms of the area it operates in and this idea of doppelgangers. Or, yeah, or... and also like the comedic character of Heinrich yeah. and the doppelgangers and the sort of constant left turns, if mm. you will. It feels very much in the vein of, of the return mood of keeping you on your toes and being very interesting, even if you don't quite know what's going on or quite understand what you're supposed to feel. I mean, you're probably not supposed to feel a specific thing, but you feel kind of in limbo. I think like it really does work on, on a lot of the same levels that make the return work so well for me anyway. You see a lot of it here. And it's interesting that those elements really work extremely well here too. Like it's quite obviously very different in a lot mm. of aspects, but the whole of it, it feels like in the same genre. Yeah, I think like emotionally, it's very grounded. Like you can tell the emotion, but the thoughts around it are obscure. Like you can't place things intellectually so much. No, but it feels very personal. Mm. There's a film scholar called Bartholomew Pazilk who had a quote where he said, um, the film also represents a disintegrating country. The very fact that the film takes place in Cold War era West Berlin is quite significant for the metaphor of divorce. The wall that separates it from East Berlin being a symbol of disconnection of what once was united. Bert Zulowski's additional intention might have been for the Berlin Wall to symbolise the Iron Curtain and for Germany to symbolise Poland, a country he had to leave in order to keep making movies. And of course, he has his spy film action adventures in the East where he's gone and not having connection and he comes back. Like there's obviously like a tension between the other place. For sure. And like I mentioned, like those are real resonances in mm. the movie that do reinforce the feeling I get that it's personal. But at the same time, it just works very well with the interior elements of the movie, the way those reflect each other and the story. But again, it all ties down to the way, the veracity of the personal conflict. Because mm. if this is a horror movie, it's a personal horror movie. It's an emotional horror movie. Mm, I agree. The horror of a failing marriage mm. turned into a nightmare. And also from your personality. For Mark, it's a failing marriage. For her, it's like your personality, like twisting out and tearing into bits from the inside, it feels yeah, like. I mean, for Anna, it seems like on some deep existential level, mm. way beyond just a personal relationship, maybe all relationships for her. Like, it's difficult to say because she's so far gone. Mm. But also this David West's guy idea of like chance and faith being the two parts of her being separate, that feels quite like the return David Lynch territory yeah. in terms of Dale Cooper being split into several parts and losing oneself in that kind of way. Maybe you can imagine like Helen's character merging with Anna's character and then becoming like the whole version of that person who she was before. Also, like the way of telling it, like the strange parable mm. reminds me of the scene in Inland Empire with the strange neighbor coming in and telling these horrible Creepy. parables <laughs> that <laughs> sound like they have some moral to them, but you have no idea what it is. Yeah, that's true. So again, like a lot of it really resonates with this sort of Lynchian subconscious mm. personal experience. But also like in a couple of really specific elements mm. that make it sort of almost weird. Almost like the synchronicities. I don't know. I mean, I think Lynch would really like that. 
Yeah, that seems to be uh, the kind of thing that he's been going for for a while. It'd be interesting to see what he would say about this one. Probably wouldn't say anything. <laughs> no. Probably refuse to discuss it and then talk about, like, some weather. Yeah, some weather. <laughs> no, but I, I really like this film. And it's interesting because when I saw it, probably like 10, 15 years from now for the first time, I really enjoyed it. But I was also very surprised that I'd never heard of it. Why is this not a film that would definitely be my cup of tea? It wasn't anywhere near my radar. And kind of just by happenstance, I ended up seeing it. I mean, it wasn't very well received. And again, well, it had this strange edit. I mean, that's a yes and a no. I mean, like when it debuted in Cannes, kind of like half of them hated it and half of them loved it. And well, she, that's a sign of merit. And Isabella Gianni got like loads of awards, Best Actress awards at Cannes and the Caesars and stuff. But Zulowski wasn't really canonized as a director until maybe last 10, 15 years. Like I definitely hadn't heard of him until I came upon this film. And he himself said it took 28 years to win over the public after this film was made, which was kind of terrible. But I think the fact that it started resonating more with people and started getting distributed and, you know, getting these 4K releases and stuff that kind of eased the resentments. It's gotten recognition now. Like if you're going to talk about cult movies these days, possession isn't necessarily too far off your... No, time. for sure. I mean, it did have a cult following from the very beginning. It was small. But also, a lot of critics talked pretty well about it. But I'm more talking about, like, general yeah. perception of it was quite mixed and not extremely good. And it sort of faded from the public view quite quickly. Yeah. And it's sad. Like, I had not heard about this movie until you turned me on to it. So, like, even now, I feel he hasn't really gotten the recognition he deserves. Mm. But, like, it's if you look on, on Reddit or, or these places, then it, it, it's a thing that pops up a lot for good reason. But it hasn't penetrated, like, the public's consciousness like a Cronenberg film would have. Sadly. It's gotten a kind of a very well-respected place. It was actually a pretty funny quote from Sight and Sound. This guy, Michael Brook, yeah. who said, well, he was kind of comparing it to von Trier's Antichrist, Cronenberg's Brood, and Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage. <laughs> That's pretty apt, like a combination. For of... sure. I mean, uh, Antichrist, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. Also, I mean, I think, I don't recall if we discussed this particularly, but Antichrist has this Bergman-esque quality to it, mm, too. Yeah, costs a long shadow. Yeah, for sure. And rightfully so. But it's interesting, this sort of relationship drama that feels so horrific and personal and intense. Yeah, and, and as you said initially, right, Johnny, she attempted suicide after this film and, you know, spent a fair while in recovery. So a lot of that intensity you see on screen, that's probably... It feels very real, yeah, for sure. And I mean, reading about that later, I mean, it's sort of, that makes sense. I mean, the emotional space you have to be in to deliver those performances, it feels almost dangerous. Yeah, it does. And I think Zlaski kind of expressed remorse for not having been able to take care of that kind of cry for help. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was not in the best mental space either at the time, as far as I know, so... Probably not even capable of doing that. I mean, all of that fits very well with this movie. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it is sort of what the story is, mm. is about, those themes. And it does so very well in a mm. very intense and kind of a sad way. Mm. Yeah, I'd say it's really an iconic movie. Um, we haven't talked so much about like the monster itself, but I love that it's so obscured. Yeah, Like the themes, it's ambiguous. You never really know what it looks like. It doesn't become cheap or boring. It's it's always in this dangerous zone of the unknown. Yeah, and it sort of represents the unknown in a way. You don't really know what it is, mm. but it is horrible and disfigured and, and gruesome and people go mad seeing it. Mm. And 
I've seen some places kind of referring it to seeing God or seeing the absence of God and like ideas about this lump of flesh turning into this other version of Mark, the green-eyed version. But those things aren't so explicit, really. That's more an interpretation. But there's a lot of interesting thoughts to be had around that, I think. Like the end stretch is so interesting, I think, when, all right, you've had these explosions, you've had them dying at top of the staircase. Yeah, I mean, that part almost feels like a gangster movie yeah. or something like that. Of course, it's a bit more bizarre. But... Yeah, but like like a horror movie of Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's what I thought, like the car sequences and stuff like that. And when you're in this, this apartment at the end, this new apartment where Helen lives, the doppelganger, and Bob seems quite content to do whatever he's doing there. And you see the Mark doppelganger in the window and it looks almost like like a zombie poster, you know, he's backlit, his hands are up. It looks like some kind of um, zombie movie and he's back there knocking on and trying to get in. And the kid says, don't open the door, just freaks out and runs up and I don't know, he goes into the bathtub and I'm not I, sure if he drowns himself or what he's no, doing. No, but I mean, throughout the movie, he's been working at uh, holding his breath and diving yeah, in the that's bathtub. True. That's sort of a small theme. Yeah, that's, that's true. Uh, so he's done that. I mean, it is foreshadowing for mm. sure. But I mean, I think it's just doing it to hide. Mm. I, I mean, you don't know. Mm. You can view it as a suicide. There's certainly been a fair share of suicides in the movie. <laughs> so Heinrich's mother, for instance, kills herself. Yeah. In a, like, sort of... yeah, after he dies, she's kind of lost her meaning. Uh, and, and why does why does Mark kill Heinrich? I never quite understood that right because he kind of before he goes to the apartment himself he knows there's something wrong because he sent this private investigators there and they're kind of funny like heinrich as well they're kind of these weird characters yeah i like them and they they also flip out when they learn what's going on and she murders them quite brutally yeah and cuts them off and puts their faces in the fridge (laughs) (laughs) it's it's really bizarre but then Mark lures Heinrich to that place because he's gotten the address from the private investigators. and But he hasn't gone himself because he's kind of content at this point. Yeah, he, he's not that interested in that anymore. And then he sort of delights in tricking Heinrich yeah. into going there. Because he knows there's something wrong because yeah, yeah. they've disappeared. He doesn't know what, but he sends him there and then Heinrich just flips out. He just uh, loses his shit, basically, and gets stabbed by her. But he's completely numb, like he, he can't really act while she's stabbing. And he just fumbles out bleeding and he calls Mark. And then Mark shows up, but first goes to the apartment and he has his own shock moments in yeah. there. But then seems to decide to blow up the apartment. And so he kind of sets up this little situation with gas and fire. But he doesn't blow it up yet. He goes down and <laughs> meets up with Heinrich and he's kind of taunting him. Yeah, he pretends that he hasn't been to the apartment. Being like this dick towards him is being horrible. Yeah, and like taunting him for freaking out and saying it like it's your imagination, it's your drugs and stuff. Yeah, he's very judgmental. And then he pretends to throw up in a cubicle in the toilet and Heinrich goes to help him and then he bangs his head with a toilet lid and then he puts his head in the toilet and flushes down and, and kind of smears the drugs all over, setting a scene for like a kind of drug death thing yeah. and then he goes back to the apartment and blows it up and it feels like he's covering up for anna that's what i was thinking yeah i mean that makes sense i mean he's trying to make it look like a suicide or drug overdose or like that whole scene just seems so bizarre mm. it's a very interesting scene but i mean he uses this feather and like a shoe to shove down the toilet and, yeah. and then the feather to like make himself throw up 
I don't really understand why. Like, Heinrich wouldn't be able to see that. Like, it just seems bizarre, but it's so elaborate. Yeah, it's quite elaborate. And that's when it starts to feel like a different type of genre <laughs> as well, the film. Yeah. In like a crime or some action film or something, those things might make more sense almost. Yeah. You're not really sure what his motivations are. No, but it's, are, it's like it's... this decontextualized Guy Ritchie scene. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really weird. Yeah. But yeah, the vibe of this movie is very particular, mm. though. It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you've seen it, Nicholas Rogue, Don't Look Now. Yeah. 1973. Great movie. This, this very intense, emotional mm. sort of, I mean, there it's more to do with the dead kid and stuff, mm. but it's also this this relationship mm. falling apart. And these almost like supernatural elements that slowly coalesce. And it's quite horrible. It's and also a very sad film. It's very sad, which is what I'm thinking more and more about this movie too. Mm. It's quite sad. Mm. Don't Look Now is probably even sadder mm. and a bit more low-key. Like, yeah. but <laughs> Most things are. <laughs> most things are. But I mean, that movie gets pretty intense too. Yeah, yeah. Pretty brutal scenes. But yeah, there's like this tension between two human beings mm. that feels very like elaborated upon mm. in this movie. In a way, I really, I wouldn't say enjoy. I mean, I enjoyed watching it, especially from like a technical. I just really loved the way it was put together. It's so beautiful. It really is. I, I really quite like the music as well. It's It almost has a bit of, uh, it has this haunting theme that pops up now and again. It's almost a bit like Italian giallo style, but you know, softer than that. Very stylish, I thought. Yeah, and like everything works quite well if you're willing to walk down this narrative path of the mm. movie, which I can totally understand if you don't want to or like you're not prepared to or, yeah. or, or it feels, I mean, it is very alienating and intense. And unpleasant. Like, it's not hard to imagine people just turning off the TV to Isabella Johnny's freaking out. <laughs> like, yeah. It's very involving as well. Like, I was watching this movie now and making notes. At some point, I just stopped making notes and it was just kind of lost in just looking at it. It's like, you can't look away. It's yeah, so it's, enrapturing. It's kind of like watching a car crash. It's, uh, <laughs> but it's so intense. And if you weren't quite into it, I feel like you could easily be put off by it. It's just so intense. Mm. And not just intense in like one scene. There's like so many different ways and intensities and different horrible scenes that are horrible in their own right, in mm. their own way. And it's all tied in with this emotional sort of intensity mm. and, and sadness and pain that, you know, if it was just purely like body horror or whatever, it, it wouldn't have that element to it. It wouldn't have that intensity mm. or veracity. The resonances throughout the movie just feel so much more brutal. Like, mm. because of the emotional resonances, the purely horror elements just feel that much worse. I mean, it's a feel-bad movie. Yeah. You feel bad all the way through. Mm. Except the Heinrich scenes. I felt very... Yeah. Those felt light. There's a couple of light moments. I think it uses horror elements in, in the right way. It's like... It's obscured, it's unsettling, you don't really know what you're dealing with, you're in the territory of the unknown, and even though you see a monster, you're not ever really sure what you're watching. Yeah, but it's more like actual horror mm. than genre horror. Yeah, horror. yeah, yeah. Like yeah the I actual agree. horror of the unknown. I mean, you can see the creature and stuff, like if you didn't have the context around it, it wouldn't be as horrible. It would mm. still be a disgusting creature. Mm -hmm. And the way it's lit and framed and put into the movie also like works wonders for, for making it serve its function. It's good creature effects and stuff, but that's not the horrible thing in this movie. Mm. The horrible thing is the intensity of the acting. Yeah. And yeah, because that shit feels so real. Yeah, it does. It's really overwhelming. I really love this movie. I think it's uh, really special and unusual and unlike almost anything. For sure. I mean, it's a bit like The Return. 
but quite different mm. as well. I mean, we've mentioned several things it's like, but it's very much like itself, mostly. Mm. It has these sort of echoes of things you can sort of feel like, but those things are like almost universal human feelings that you can experience in other movies and media. If it's really good, of course, we talk a lot about intense and unpleasant movies, so we get to experience that a lot. <laughs> but it's in it, in it's, I mean, the thing it looks most like is maybe his own films. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how about you? Did you like it? Did you enjoy it? I'm not unrestrainedly, like, it's not a complete success in my book, but that's sort of beside the point. Like, it's really worthwhile. Like, there are flaws in it, but I don't think that means you should watch it. And the strengths are, like, really interesting. What would you say is like the major flaw? Well, I mean, some of its strengths are flaws, in my opinion. It's very alienating and it's very like, uh, <laughs> it's hard to watch. Like, yeah. And I mean, that might be the point, but I don't think that's like, it's a mixed, like, mm. yeah. It was really uncomfortable to watch, for instance. Mm. Like, I, I wouldn't say like it was pure pleasure. Like a lot of it was very interesting. But at the same time, sometimes you're just watching these moments of pain and horror and suffering and you can't really say you're enjoying it. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I appreciate it as art, but at the same time, this is not a movie I would just show anybody. <laughs> I would certainly pick my victim. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of the acting is super over the top mm. and stuff, and I feel like it works. But at the same time, like, I can see how you could criticize it. Like, you could definitely do it. Like, there's lots of, like, small stuff, but nothing that really detracts from it, like, mm. overall as a worthwhile movie. Mm. It's a super interesting movie mm. and should have its rightful place in cinema history. But I think you, you make a good point with acting. Like, I, I think the acting is superb, but it kind of has several different types of acting styles. And none of them are typical American, this clean, invisible. It's pretty expressionistic. And this guy who plays Heinrich, <laughs> there's something like almost pompous about his kind of... <laughs> Extremely pompous. Very, very sort of theatrical and poetic a lot and... of it is very theatrical and it's very yeah expressionistic is one way of putting it but there's like a lot of motion and mm. i mean you could describe i guess a lot of it is like chewing the scenery almost yeah and that yeah. might be the point but it's still chewing the scenery and mm. also i would say the sort of marriage of the different uh, international actors and stuff it can feel a bit like uh like the english accents and stuff uh, well yeah because it's fun like the kids they speak like British English. <laughs> yeah, little Bob. Yeah, Bob, but also kids at his school. Yeah. But and then like, you have like all these Central European actors that yeah. have like very clear accents. Yeah. And Sam Neill is, of course, from New Zealand. Yeah. So there's this, this, this hodgepodge of accents. And like that stuff, it works for me, but yeah. it is a mixed bag mm. for sure. It's not perfect. And like you sort of have to buy everybody speaking English in these weird accents mm. in not England. But yeah, you said chewing the scenery, but. You know, I feel like it doesn't become hammy. It doesn't go over into, you know, sometimes you can have films that go over into B-movie territory, either for comedic or for lack of talent. For sure. And it doesn't go there. I mean, if you compare it to Brucey Strangler, which we talked about before, which is very hammy, quite campy and very playful in its its acting. It doesn't go in that direction. No, but I mean, the material is so good. Mm. That's sort of beside the acting, like it's a mode. Mm. With worse material, it would be a joke, mm. you know? And it could be a cool joke, mm. like <laughs> uh, Tim and Eric style yeah. or whatever. But it would be very like chewing the scenery. Mm. And it works in this movie because it has a deep emotional core. Mm. And you don't feel like it's putting on a show or whatever. Mm. I feel like it's a genuine attempt by the director to explore something. But again, I can imagine it being quite off-putting as a style. Like, I don't think everybody appreciates 
that kind of intensity <laughs> in acting. It is quite well written. It has a few lines that are quite striking. Yeah. I like, because we watched one of his earlier movies, uh, The Devils or Diablos. Or, or Diablo. Diablo, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I like that one better. So mm. it's like, it's not even my favorite of his movies, mm. but I think it's, it's really cool. Mm. And it's uh, kind of a unique, weird movie. That's, uh, I'm really glad you watched for this. Yeah, me too. So, uh, Slider, do you have a unpleasant recommendation for our listeners today? I do. And this one is pretty simple. It's a subreddit. All right. <laughs> and it's called uh, MacMansion Hell. <laughs> what? <laughs> And it's basically a place where people post the most disgusting McMansions. If you're not aware of what that is, it's like this architectural style originating in the United States. And it's sort of like the most tasteless like way of building these horrible, like huge mansion-like houses. But they're not mansions. They're usually crammed into like two tight lots and they're built really cheaply and quickly. So they <laughs> fall apart. And the sort of roof lines are these like hodgepodge messes, like, and like the architectural styles, they don't make sense. <laughs> it's like everything is just like this veneer of trying to appear successful and rich. And it's so disgusting. And it's so funny too, like going on house tours visually through these houses. There's so much stuff that doesn't make sense and so many like bad choices and so many like horrific color choices and material choices and interior design choices. And there's so much disgusting architecture going on. Is it like, does it feel like they started on the house and then built out and they kept building out and then it's like a collection of... No, no. Well, sort of. But imagine if you did that, but just did that from the beginning, okay. like the way it was planned. Like what's very usual about these houses are they're very asymmetrical. They usually have like these huge entrances, like usually okay. with like columns, like over usually over two floors. Okay. I've heard it described as like these entrances and then like these huge entryways into the houses that just are these huge spaces that aren't used for anything. Mm, okay. I've, I've heard it described as lawyer foyers. <laughs> uh, they're disgusting and they may, and they're like, they have no meaning apart from trying to impress visitors. It's, it's just horrible. Like a lot of these houses, most of the elements are there to impress people. But they are made cheaply and shoddily. And like there's this disgusting mix of things going on, like this pride and nouveau riche sensibility and no respect for like craftsmanship and uh -huh. understanding of <laughs> tradition, like, like this beautiful tragedy. And it's just delightful to explore this disgusting mess of uh, architecture. And I'm really interested in architecture and I'm not super snobbish about it. But real McMansions are so disgusting, <laughs> and uh, it's it's nice to see it documented and uh, lampooned. Seems like a great setting for a horror movie. I mean, a lot of movies in America are shot in McMansions. I mean, if you remember um, The Sopranos House, that's yeah. like kind of McMansion-ish. Ah. Sort of a seemingly like rich, but kind of like gaudy and ugly. But it's kind of clean suburbs, though. Yeah, it's very suburb like, it's a very suburb style. Mm. And it's, uh, I fucking hate it. Uh, <laughs> but I love looking at pictures of it. Oh, yeah. That so, yeah, that's my recommendation, McMansion Hell. I, I, I think originally it was like a web page by one architecture writer named Kate Wagner that went about just posting like real estate listings of these houses they just found very interesting <laughs> and just went and like desecrated them in text very funnily. And then eventually, I think, turned into a subreddit and yeah. 
check that out if oh. you're interested in horrible architecture. Well, that sounds great. I look forward to checking out that stuff. So do you have a recommendation, Thomas? I do. And it is a uh, Polish video game released in 2017, although it was in early access before that. It's called Darkwood. And it's this top-down, more or less black and white, almost like a survivor type thing, but it's it's really a horror game. It has like a day and night cycle. I think it's set in the 80s, some kind of remote Soviet place, and there's this wood that's kind of covered everything. You Is don't... it like post-apocalyptic? Well, not exactly, because it's like the wood and there are cabins, and it's really dangerous. And I mean, it looks beautiful, like the lighting and the sound design. It's really intense. And at the night time, you have to stay indoors in the cabin close to light sources because shit is going to go down. It's like Minecraft. You basically just die of darkness. Oh, wow. And it's really good because like there's no like sleep option. You can't like skip time. You're just going to have to wait out in this cabin at night and you're often not really doing much. You're just waiting and you and it starts to become really creepy and maybe you hear some knocking at the doors and then doors look like they start to open. Maybe there's something there, maybe there isn't. And the music also really nice and it just escalates and it becomes so intense, these night cycles where you're just waiting. You're bloody helpless there, especially in the beginning of that game really powerfully moody. It's probably one of the more intense games I've ever played. And That's saying something. Yeah. Played yeah. a couple. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, was, I was comparing it to Minecraft and sort of joking, but, you know, early Minecraft, you couldn't skip time. Yeah. So you would actually have to wait through the night if you didn't have any equipment or stuff. And honestly, like those early Minecraft builds where you didn't quite know what was going on mm. and nighttime came on, like that shit was kind of terrifying. Yeah. So, yeah. Night cycles where you can't just skip past the uncomfortable elements. I think that's interesting. And it's a design choice that's kind of difficult to make. Yeah, it's very unsettling and it's really nicely made. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the sort of games that you'd see made for PC in the 90s. Like the control scheme isn't as weird as many of those were. You don't have to use the arrow keys to move and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's it's maybe a little bit finicky, which I kind of like because it reminds me of that stuff. But but it's also like the gameplay is obscured. You don't really know how things work. Like a lot of games these days, they come with like a set of controls that's ported. They're all the same. Like, hey, you don't really know. Like there are some uh, passcodes you need to find like to the safe or something. But when you find those codes, when you find information, you don't know anything. And you're really lost and you're really vulnerable and you have to gather some resources and you have to be kind of efficient and you have to kind of learn to understand this really threatening place. But I, I take it there's no like tutorial and stuff. You have to figure well, stuff there, on. There is like own. a, there is kind of like a tutorial, sure, but yeah. uh, it's still pretty obscure. But I like games that sort of teach you how to play it through the game. I mean, you, you can say Elden Ring has a tutorial of sorts too, but not really. I mean... <laughs> You don't know how stuff works. Right. I mean, you might figure some some stuff out from playing earlier FromSoft games. But, yeah, yeah, not, yeah. but I mean, unless you've done that, you are sort of left on your own. But yeah, it does kind of have a little bit of that vibe, like particularly early from software games, say, it was so obscure, like mm. world tendency and stuff. I don't understand yeah, what's it's, going on. It's, it's difficult to understand and the games are so ruthless. Mm. It feels feels very dangerous and, yeah. and unsettling. It's, it's a very specific atmosphere. Yeah. And this kind of taps into that sort of thing, but it's it's more and more explicitly horror. Yeah, like really stylish. It certainly got some attention, but uh, definitely I feel like more people should check it out. I think they're called Acid Wizards, the developer. Yeah. 
And if they're not, I mean, that's a great name for a doom sludge <laughs> stoner metal band. Listen to them. That's my recommendation. It's really good. It's not so long as well. And it, it escalates into pretty interesting territories. It has weird characters and very creepy scenes and situations. So it's not like a roguelike or a truth survival no, no, game. No, no. It has a narrative yeah. element. Yeah. It has a, a narrative and it feels dangerous and spooky, like genuinely. I love when games really try to focus on those things because they can be, I mean, like the movie we discussed, it can be alienating yeah. to audiences. And especially if the difficulty level can be high mm. and the game isn't holding your hand, you're turning off a lot of potential buyers. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I love games that make choices that aren't necessarily going to make the money, but mm. make artistic and uh, system sense. Right. I mean, if you're looking for a scary game and you haven't heard of Darkwood, Definitely check it out. It's going to freak you out. I really want to check that out. Plus, I think the setting sounds cool. Mm, yeah, it, it's really beautiful. The lighting, it looks great. It looks really good. Good lighting. I mean, that can do so much for mm. a game, even if the graphics are simple. Mm. All right. So that's it for now. Uh, next episode, we will be talking about Zalowski's On the Silver Globe, which is going to be very interesting, I think, as well. Kind of a unfinished movie, but still possible to see. So watch that and come back and listen to us for the next episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protomail.com. The music for this episode was made by Umulium. That's Uskarning and Sverogor. That's you. That's true. The artwork for this episode was made by me, Thomas Imosenbombra. That's you. And that's me. <laughs> and with that, I'll say adios, amigos. No, I'll say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> Just say goodbye. It's more natural. <laughs> yes. See ya. Thank you.